Hello, thank you for listening to an episode of our Valiant Voices conversation series. I am Cheryl Thomas, the founder and executive director of Global Rights for Women, a nonprofit located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working to end gender-based violence around the world. This episode was recorded on a Zoom webinar. If you would like to attend the next one live, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org front slash Valiant Voices to sign up. Thank you and enjoy listening to our series. Welcome everyone to Disrupting the Pathway to Prison and Achieving Justice for Survivors of Gender-Based Violence. I'm Patricia Cumbie, Communications Manager for Global Rights for Women. And I will start with a land acknowledgement. We gratefully acknowledge the indigenous people of the lands we are on today. Even though we are meeting in a virtual space, it is important for us to recognize that we have and continue to benefit from the theft and occupation of this land since even before the United States was formed as a nation. Global Rights for Women is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with staff throughout Minnesota, and acknowledges we are on Dakota and Anishinaabe land. We recognize the historic discrimination and violence that have been inflicted upon Indigenous people globally. Additionally, we understand the treatment of Indigenous women is a byproduct of colonialism, racism, and misogyny that has perpetuated the continued sexual abuse, disappearance, and murder of Indigenous women. So please join us now in a moment of reflection to acknowledge the harm of the past and present and to consider how you can join the effort to dismantle the continued oppression of Indigenous communities and restore justice. And also, since people are joining here from around the world, at this time, if you would like to put into the chat the land you are acknowledging, we'd appreciate it. And now I would like to turn over this event to my colleague, Melissa Skaya. Okay, thank you, Pat. And thank you, everyone for being here today. Um, I'm very, very happy uh, to be here um, with all of you. Uh, I'm joining you from northern uh, Minnesota and uh, near the Fond du Lac um, band of Ojibwe's land here in northeast Minnesota. So I'm uh, very excited to be here and to be a part of this conversation with you all in this series that we're calling Valiant Voices. Um, as Pat said, um, I'm Melissa Skaya and I'll be today's moderator. I'm the Director of International Training at Global Rights uh, for Women, which is an organization with the mission to end domestic and sexual violence around the world through systemic and legal change. I've also done research on this topic that we're here about today related to uh, criminalized survivors and um, uh, been also part of some testimony related to this. And uh, we'll be having some guests talking about that here today. Uh, Valiant Voices is a conversation series that Global Rights for Women created that features the human rights advocates and survivors who are addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. Uh, this is really stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities around the world. We're also very excited and pleased to announce to you today that um, this series or our podcast is the recipient of a National Purple uh, Ribbon Award for Outstanding Domestic Violence Podcast in uh, 2023 uh, from domesticshelters.org uh, did um, some awards. So I want to really thank Pat for her work and Sophia for her work and the other staff at Global Rights for Women for organizing this and being recognized um, for, for their success. But this re recognition for excellence would not be possible without our generous donors who support these conversations and the guests who bring their authentic selves, sharing their experiences, their expertise, and passionate commitment to ending gender-based violence around the world. 
So um, as part of our way to engage with you today, we're going to uh, welcome your chats uh, or comments in the chat or in the Q&A section on Zoom. I'm going to kind of keep track of those. I'll be making sort of some subjective decisions about whether to to pop into the uh, one of our speakers to ask it now or wait, kind of depending on if I think it's a, a quick question or not. So if I don't um, acknowledge it right away, I don't want you to think I didn't see it. I, I promise you I've seen it unless my internet goes out, but I, I will see it. So we just want you to know we, we will um, get to those. Um, so we after this conversation, we'll send you out a link uh, with the recording. If you need a certificate of attendance, you can contact Sophia Morissette at our office and she'll put her um, her email address in the chat for all of you. So today we'll be talking about gender-based violence, sexual abuse, and incarceration. We recognize that there are likely, as, as usually all are anytime we get any group of people together, survivors who are with us. So parts of this conversation could be triggering to you, can be hard for you to hear, and we want to um, just give a, a, a friendly warning to you about some of that. You're, of course, not required to stand here, or if you want to disconnect, just know that you're going to get a copy of this um, recording later if you feel like maybe at a different time, but we just want you to know that before we start. So we are including resources for people in the US and internationally in the chat for those who may need um, resources for their own safety or just their own well-being and assistance. So I want to just begin by giving just sort of a short introduction um, to each of our guests. Very excited that they're here with us today. Uh, their bios are much longer than what I'm going to um, sort of tell you, but I'm going to give just sort of a, a short um, description really uh, of who they are. So um, first, I'm just going to, we have Caitlin Rose Fisher, who's a founding partner at Forsgen Fisher and McCalment Demaria Tysver LLP. And Caitlin, I'm sure you're gonna tell me if I got that wrong, so I'm sorry, but it's a law firm in Minneapolis and Kansas City that focuses on trials, investigations, and intellectual property counseling. Caitlin Rose represents clients from all walks of life in high stakes civil and criminal proceedings, she has a very impressive track record of client successes and multiple wins that have received international media coverage. And one of those, of course, is related uh, to what we have her here talking about with us today. And so um, welcome, Caitlin Rose. Next, we have uh, Cindine Pazell. She's the director of the National Descent Defense Center for Criminalized Survivors at Better Women's Justice Project. For those of you who are familiar with their previous name, it was the National Clearinghouse on the Defense of Battered Women, but we want to acknowledge their new name as the National Defense Center for Criminalized Survivors. Uh, Cindine oversees the legal team and provides specialized technical assistance to defense teams, including attorneys, expert witnesses, anti-domestic violence advocates, and criminalized survivors. Cindine's an experienced trainer, develops legal resources related to defense-based advocacy, and consults on policy and legislation impacting criminalized survivors. So uh, next we have Angela Hattery. Uh, Angie is the professor, is professor of the Women and Gender Studies and co-director of the Center for Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence at the University of Delaware. She received her BA in Sociology and Anthropology from Carleton College and her master's and PhD in sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of 12 books. Her most recent one, Way Down in the Hole, Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies in Solitary Confinement, explores the ways in which racial antagonisms are exacerbated by the particular structures of solitary confinement. She's also the author of Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled, and How to Work for Change, and Gender, Power, and Violence, Responding to Sexual Intimate Partner Violence in Society Today. 
prior to coming to the University of Delaware, she held positions at Ball State University, Wake Forest University, Colgate University, and most recently at George Mason uh, University. And for those of you who saw on our sort of introduction that we were having Earl here, and we'll have Angie tell a little bit about why Earl's not here, if you want to, Angie, um, when you sort of um, introduce uh, yourself. And then we're just so excited and privileged to have Danielle Trueblood here, uh, who completed the Goodwill Easter Seals reentry program after being released from incarceration in 2014 and began working as a sales associate at Dollar Tree after completing their call center and customer service training and later, later becoming a manager. Danielle wrote, produced, and directed an award-winning play called Secrets. She's a trained um, PGF facilitator and has been co-facilitating uh, weekly mentoring groups since 2018. She participates in outreach efforts at Shakopee Women's Prison here in Minnesota and metro area adjacent male uh, DOC facilities and works with Second Chance Coalition and Justice for All to address various issues related to re-entry and criminal justice reform. So we're just so excited to have all of you and thank you all so much uh, for joining us. So I'm just gonna give a little bit of a context and then we're gonna go right into our questions for our panelists so that we can hear for, from all of them. So what we know is that nationwide in this country, in the United States, women's state prison populations grew 834% over nearly 40 years, more than double the rate of men. Women are currently the fastest growing prison population, yet their trajectory trajectory to penitentiary is much different. Incarcerated women experience higher levels of prior victimization than men and much more extensive gender-based violence than non-incarcerated women. So prior victimization, especially and specifically childhood sexual and physical abuse are nearly universal experiences for women prisoners, leaving them vulnerable to situations that persuade, force, or trick them into criminal activity. So setting that sort of context, we have some particular questions for our panelists. I'd like to start with you, Cindine. And just to say a little bit, you know, many women in prison have been victims of much more serious offenses than um, the crimes they're often accused of committing. And there are strong links between women's arrest and their prior experiences with sexual abuse, domestic violence, and coercive control in their lives. Can you talk about when women commit legal or illegal violence and have a history of also experiencing violence, how some of these risk factors make women more vulnerable for incarceration? And then a little bit how the center that you work um, at, the National Defense Center for Criminalized Survivors is working to address this. So Cindy. Sure, thanks, Melissa. First of all, at, at a fundamental level, being abused is a risk factor for criminalization and incarceration, period. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some are very straightforward. Some are a little bit more complicated. But um, the, at the very fundamental level, police are more likely to show up in a place where violence is happening. Um, and when police show up, everybody who's present you know, their their risk factor for being arrested goes up, you know, so that's just kind of the A to B to C explanation. But we also know that other systems, unwelcome systems, tend to get involved um, when there is violence going on in a family or in a community. Systems like immigration, um, child protective services, and all of these, you know, once a survivor is on the radar of these systems, they're way more likely to be on the radar of the criminal legal system as well. But what we see that's maybe not as straightforward until you look a little bit more closely is that survival strategies, no matter how necessary they are, are sometimes criminal in nature. And that can lead to arrest, especially when we're talking about self-defense or self-defensive actions um, against one's abusive partner, or against one abuse, uh, excuse me, one's abusive partner's family. 
um, when survivors use violence either to defend themselves in the moment or to prevent an assault that they know is happening in the future because they're experts um, on the danger uh, they face at the hands of their abusive partner, um, that can lead to criminalization. And, and sometimes those survivors have some arguments in the criminal legal system about acting in legal self-defense, but they don't always. Um, and so once somebody's in the system, it's really, really hard to get out of it. Um, self-defense is certainly not the only way um, that a survivor might be particularly vulnerable to using violence. We know that um, abusive partners coerce their victims into criminalized activity all the time. Sometimes this is because they themselves are involved in whatever activities like drug dealing or um, economic crimes. And sometimes it's exactly for the reason that that gives them another way to exert power and control um, over their victims. Because once a abusive partner has the criminal legal system or the police you know, on his side, you know, his power over the survivor um, increases exponentially um, and leaves her even fewer options for safety and for self-determination. So at the National Defense Center for Criminalized Survivors, we, um, as you said in the introduction, uh, Melissa, we offer um, technical support to defense attorneys who represent survivors who have already been arrested. So if there is a legal nexus between what they're accused of doing um, and their experiences of abuse, we work with attorneys and experts on whether and how to bring those experiences forward and how to legally connect the dots between those experiences um, and the crimes for which they are charged. What, what we see over and over and over again for the past you know, several decades is that um, fact finders, judges, and juries both um, think that they know a lot about domestic and sexual violence. And it is those that, you know, that assumption that they have all the information that really gets in the way of making fair and just assessments of the facts that are in front of them. So uh, we also work with advocates on providing defense-based advocacy so that when you work with a survivor, the things that you do in order to help them achieve um, safety and justice don't undermine um, their experiences in the criminal legal system. Yeah. So, Sunin, just a quick follow-up is, what, what if survivors themselves are listening and they have an attorney? Do you prefer that their attorney contact you or them, just in case somebody's wondering? Um, that's a great question. In an ideal situation, a survivor would have their attorney's reach out to us. And that's not because we don't want to talk to survivors. That's because we want to be as protective as we can about um, a survivor's legal rights and options. We don't want to jeopardize privilege or confidentiality in any way. But yeah. if survivors do call us, you know, we'll, we'll set up those boundaries and then we'll make the connections from there. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. I was just thinking about advocates who might be listening to or who are helping survivors and whether they should just have their, you know, survivors give you a call. So thanks for that. So yeah. Cindy, we'll be coming back to you for a, a, another question. So um, Caitlin Rose, so you've been working on a high profile case uh, in Minnesota, uh, representing a woman charged and convicted um, of second degree murder of her partner. Um, this small world, um, I actually testified as the expert witness in, in that original trial. And just for transparency, today is the first day I've ever met Caitlin Rose. Um, uh, I didn't know that Pat was asking her and Pat was asking me to facilitate this and realize that um, our worlds came together and this is the first time that we're meeting. Well, I testify as an expert witness. You worked on this big case earlier this month with the Minnesota Court of Appeals that reversed um, that conviction because the jury instructions did not adequate, adequately account for the history of abuse. Can you talk about the importance of the criminal justice system taking into consideration 
prior victimization, especially with regard to gender-based violence. And the importance of, um, of that in this case is an example and really help the listeners understand the importance of this ruling in, partic in particular uh, by the Minnesota uh, Court of Appeals. So Caitlin Rose, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. And and before I jump in, I will note that that case, it remains ongoing. We had a, a wonderful win at the Court of Appeals, um, but there will almost certainly be further proceedings. In fact, just this morning, the state asked the Minnesota Supreme Court to review the Court of Appeals decision. So uh, I can speak at a high level about um, about what's in the public record, and, and I'll do that, but of course, can't go into anything. Of course. That's yeah. not public. Of course. Uh, so, you know, as you said, Melissa, this is um, this is such an important topic because, uh, and this is just in my anecdotal experience, almost every single time I work with a woman who finds herself as a defendant or a suspect or, um, a, you know, incarcerated in the criminal justice system, there is a history of abuse. And so it is just, it, it is such an important topic because especially with women in the justice system, it's, it's nearly everyone. Um, and so the way that I think about it is, I, I think it's important to ensure one, that uh, we're not, we're not um, viewing people as criminals when really they're victims, right, from the outset. And, and I think it starts with the investigation, it, it goes to charging decisions, trial strategy, it's important at sentencing if there is a conviction. And then of course it's it's important when, when a woman's incarcerated, how do we recognize and understand um, how to best protect people that are incarcerated that have a history of sexual violence in their past. And so those are kind of the four categories where I think we really need people that are trained that understand how to recognize a history of, um, of intimate partner violence or sexual or gender-based violence to ensure that we're not we're not putting people in jail that shouldn't be in jail in the first place and to ensure that if someone ends up in jail, it's a just sentence, right? And, and they're not being further victimized when they are in jail. Um, and so, uh, you know, talking specifically about the case that I've recently been involved in, I was not a part of the trial team, but um, after the the client that that we represent, Stephanie Clark, was convicted by a jury, did represent Miss Clark on appeal. Um, and, and just to provide a few facts that I think are important, and, and I think that this case provides a nice example of, you know, how both during, how during investigation, charging, sentencing, at all of those moments, it's important to have training and understanding of a history of gender-based violence. Um, but again, going back to the high-level facts, Miss um, Clark is, uh, she was undoubtedly a victim of uh, intimate partner violence at the hands of her partner. No one disputed that. Uh, and she shot and killed her partner. When police arrived in her house, there were guns everywhere. She had bruises that were forming on her body. She told law enforcement right away um, that her partner had told her that he was going to break her ribs that night when her young child went to bed. Uh, she told law enforcement right away that he had held a gun to the back of her head. Um, and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't disputed at all that Miss Clark was abused by the man that she killed. Um, but nonetheless, she was charged with and convicted of murder where uh, as um, Cindy often seen, has seen the issue was whether she had acted in self-defense. Uh, in our opinion, um, during the investigation, during the charging decisions, at sentencing, throughout every step of the way, there wasn't an adequate understanding or accounting for her history of gender-based violence. Um, and fortunately, uh, the Court of Appeals recently agreed. It said, and I'm quoting, um, it, that the district court telegraphed to the jury that holding a loaded gun to a person's head and threatening harm does not qualify as an imminent threat, end quote. Basically, the Court of Appeals agreed that the district court didn't when it was instructing the jury, didn't adequately account for Ms. Clark's history of gender-based violence. Um, I, I think that there are, I think specific examples can be pretty helpful for something like this. And so I, I wanted to share a few quotes from the case that I think are particularly telling um, and that, that show why at the end of the day, 
in our opinion, this conviction cannot be reconciled with the law surrounding self-defense and with the realities of intimate partner violence. Um, but starting with the investigation, uh, the investigator, the very first evening that, that um, after Miss Clark shot and killed her abuser said, uh, and I'm quoting, I just don't understand why you didn't get up and leave and go to your parents, go to your mom's house and get away from the situation, end quote. To which Ms. Clark said, well, he would have stopped me. Uh, that investigator was the person that recommended that Ms. Clark be charged with murder, which she was less than 24 hours later, while there were still bruises that were forming up and down her entire torso. Uh, at, at trial, a huge theme from the prosecution was that Ms. Clark could have left. She could have walked out of that home, even though there were all of these guns all over the place and her partner was a larger man. Um, the prosecution actually tried to exclude Ms. Clark's history of domestic abuse from the jury by motion, which the court fortunately overruled. But because of all of that, because of the way that the state was trying the case, Ms. Clark had to hire an expert. That's that's where you could come in, Melissa, to talk about, to explain to a jury, why don't women leave? Why might it not be safe to leave? To answer that big question that the investigator was asking, that the prosecutor asked in closing arguments. Um, and again, I think it's really important that in closing the and throughout the entire case, the prosecution didn't dispute that Ms. Clark was abused. Um, and then of course she was she was convicted. And when you get to sentencing, again, there was a minimizing of the history of abuse that that I find pretty concerning. Um, so I'm quoting again from the prosecution, quote, I don't dispute the statistics about domestic abuse, but I'd ask you not to consider them in this case. They don't have relevance as to what Ms. Clark in this case should receive as a sentence. Even though she was abused, uh, there was, she had bruises on her body, the prosecution actually argued at sentencing that the history of domestic abuse wasn't relevant. It wasn't relevant to her sentence. Um, and the judge at the end of the day agreed. He said that the only corroboration for abuse that there was was a bruise on Ms. Clark's body, which I think is pretty substantial corroboration myself. Um, and uh, ultimately declined to even find mitigating circumstances for Ms. Clark's sentence, concluding that um, that there wasn't even sufficient evidence that the her partner had been the aggressor in the incident. Um, so again, I think you can see throughout all stages from investigation, charging decisions, sentencing, I think the system let Ms. Clark down and didn't adequately account for her domestic violence. And from our perspective, it took getting to the Court of Appeals to right that wrong. Uh, and for the Court of Appeals to say, no, you have to look at the history of domestic abuse in these cases. Yeah, th thank you, Caitlin Rose, for sharing that. That's really helpful context. And also just to say that, you know, as a as an expert witness, I was what I, I sort of call it a blind expert witness in the meaning that, you know, when I come in, I don't know the facts of the case. And I, you know, read sort of the things that are public sort of after because of this big decision. But yeah, thank you. Because uh, I didn't know that about the sentencing either um, in that sort of stage and all those sorts of phases. So Thank you. So we'll, we'll come back to you again. Uh, that was really, really helpful context. So um, we're going to go to Daniil uh, next. Uh, Daniil, so um, honored to have you here with us today. You've written the play Secrets about being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and your incarceration for trying to protect your child from an abusive family member. In interviews with the media, you said you wrote Secrets as the play because we as a society don't talk about sexual abuse. You have noted that people keep their traumas hidden and unaddressed because we were told by society to keep it in the family or take care of it yourself. You've written about how past abuse and traumas weigh on you until one day, you know, some survivors just reach a breaking point. As an incarcerated survivor, you've also been speaking out about how incarceration does nothing to help people deal with past trauma, and the system doesn't even consider it as relevant to a person's history. What is it that you want people to know, Danielle, and, and talk about regarding sexual abuse and other gender-based violence as an unjust pathway to imprisonment? Well, thank you, um, Melissa. Um, my thing is that when you uh, suffer trauma, sexual trauma as a child, 
and you never expose that to society. Um, many a times it's because society tells you to keep that a secret uh, without knowing the, the trauma that that secret uh, embodies as you grow into your um growing to yourself until you, you know, growing into a woman, those secrets have a way of, you know, um, hindering your growth process. And um, it's still there so that when um, that time comes, when you can no longer hide it or keep it a secret and you snap, um, then you're slapped with some type of a jail or incarceration. And the court systems usually, they don't look at, you know, your, your past trauma because you never addressed it. And so it becomes irrelevant. Um, but there is always a reason why, you know, we lash out. It's because of that, the triggers that occur from that childhood trauma. And incarcerating someone because of something that happened in your, your distant past does not help you, you know, address that trauma. What it does is add the trauma of incarceration on top of that hidden trauma, on top of the other stressors that uh, go hand in hand with it. And so... Um, as a formerly incarcerated person, I learned, I found my purpose, and that was to start to unpack that childhood trauma that so many of us are still holding on to, to try to, you know, give anyone and everyone that opportunity to say, hey, that happened to me as well. And I finally have, you know, um, I finally have a opening to a conversation that I can be a part of to start to unpack and heal myself. Seeing that while you are incarcerated, there's no programs, there's no one to talk to, to try to unpack that trauma. And it passes me what your other question was. Yeah, I think that the other thing we just wanna know is just about, you know, kind of about, you know, you answered a little bit, I guess, about how incarceration does nothing to help with that, right? But us, what do you want people to know and talk about regarding sexual abuse um, and gender-based and other gender-based violence as an unjust pathway to imprisonment? Well, you know, I, I wrote the play Secrets because I wanted to create that platform, you know, because there are still, you know, uh, women out here who are carrying that trauma who are using that trauma and, and really don't know that they're using that trauma in the demise of their incarceration. Um, so that just creating that platform for society to say, you know, this is something that we shouldn't continue to hide, continue to sweep under the rug. You know, if we address this, you know, as a community, you know, one by one, you know, we can get a lot accomplished, especially if we're all talking about it as far as the court systems, getting the court systems to realize that you 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 can't put, you know, what's relevant of someone's childhood trauma in, and not even take a look at it in their incarceration. You know, it's time to talk about it. Let's let's talk about it. Let's get it out there. Yeah, thank you, Danielle, for um, for telling us about that and about your important work and your creativity also in writing this play. I think is also, of course, to be commended in terms of how we how we learn and how we think. So, thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. Yeah. So now, uh, are we going to Angie or are we going to Earl? Maybe Angie, if you could just give me a little context about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think you... we're going with me, Melissa. Okay. All right. All right. So but welcome, um, Earl. So glad you're here. Yes. Welcome, Earl. Um, so glad you're here too. Um, Angie, you also write about the dehumanization of Black people and how incarceration contributes to further dehuman dehumanization based on how people are treated in prison. 
For example, in Minnesota, incarcerated women were shackled to their beds when they're giving birth to as recently as 2021. Even though a law uh, was passed against using restraints in 2014, and they were separated from their newborns, uh, a practice though that was really only stopped just over a year ago. Um, in your book, Way Down in the Hole, you talk about the replic replication of racist ideologies and solitary confinement. And one of the worst things you can do to a human being is to isolate them in that way. A practice that's actually recognized by the UN as a gross human rights violation. Um, what do you learn about criminalized survivors um, from, from your research that you've done? So Melissa, thank you. Um, thank you for, for including us in this presentation. Um, so this, this part of the presentation is a little bit sort of more the 30,000 foot level. And we've been studying gender-based violence for more than 20 years. And after researching folks who, who are incarcerated, so for way, the book Way Down in the Hole, we spent three summers um, inside solitary, not the whole summer, but across three summers, we spent time in solitary confinement units um, in both men's and women's prisons. Oh, there we go, some slides. Uh, thank you. And um, came to understand and believe that incarceration itself is a form of gender-based violence. So not only are women with trauma histories being incarcerated, but the experience itself is re-victimization and new victimization. Um, you've, we've already talked about this, um, that pretty much everyone who's in prison, um, in women's prisons has a history of sexual or intimate partner violence and almost a huge majority of those have a, a history of child sexual abuse as we've talked about already this hour. I also wanted to point out, and this is not on the slide, uh, but it should have been, Black women are one and a half times more likely to be incarcerated than white women. So way disproportionately. So important whose bodies it is that we are traumatizing and engaging in sexual and intimate partner, or I'm sorry, gender-based violence once they're inside the walls. Um, so I think those are important to consider. So you can scroll down to the next slide. Um, one of the places, a myth that I would love to bust up in this uh, conversation is many states most states, the federal government, have said that they've discontinued the use of solitary confinement. If you walk away from this webinar with nothing else, I hope you will walk away knowing that that is not the case at all. That is not true. Um, what happens is prisons and prison systems simply rename it, um, call it a secure housing unit or some sort of management unit, but it's still people locked in total isolation, um, 20, 20 plus hours per day um, with almost no contact. We spent time in a place called the Behavioral Management Unit, which is a solitary confinement unit in a women's prison. We interviewed 10 women who were there, um, which might sound like a, you know, a small number, but um, they are important. Their stories are important. All of them had a history of child sexual abuse, and all of them were self-harming, and they were severely self-harming. And what's important about that is that they were assigned to behavioral management unit. They were sent to solitary confinement because they were self-harming. So rather than offering women who had come into prison um, therapy or healing rituals or anything to address their experience of child sexual abuse, instead, when they behaved in ways that the prison couldn't manage, they put them in solitary confinement, which is another form we're arguing here of gender-based violence. Um, it's re-victimization and it's continued victimization. And as you can imagine, um, no one gets better in solitary confinement. So any, any psychological mental health issue is only going to get worse. Um, and you can scroll to the next slide. Thank you. Um, when we think specifically about gender-based violence, one form of it as violence against women's reproductive and sexual bodies, at least two things come to mind and are important. You mentioned the shackling. Um, tons of states have outlawed that, and we've interviewed many, many women who still experienced it. So a little bit like the solitary confinement myth, um, there's a lot of myth around that. And, and part of the problem is that these decisions are really made at the on-the-ground level. So there may be a policy, but the officer who's transporting the woman to deliver the baby, often they, they do what they want. Um, so they're not necessarily compliant with the policies. Um, and we've heard over and over and over stories of women being shackled during labor and delivery, which is not only 
torture and inhumane, but it's very clearly a form of gender-based violence, right? It's a violence against women's re reproductive and sexual bodies. Um, for women held in, for everyone, but for in this case, women held in solitary confinement, every time they move out of, out of their cell to the shower, to the yard, to see a, uh, to do an interview, uh, to meet with a lawyer, although that hardly ever happens, but those kinds of things, um, they're strip searched. And we spent a lot of time thinking about the strip search for the victim of sexual child sexual abuse or any sexual abuse. It can be experienced as sexual violence, but certainly triggering for people who have that trauma history, right? Um, and we can go to the next slide. We wanted to focus, like many uh, of the other presenters, to tell a story of a human being. So this is the story of a woman we call Marina. Um, Marina had a history of child sexual abuse. By the time she was around three years old, uh, she was placed into foster care um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and when she was 11 years old, she committed a terrible crime. Um, she got up um, in her foster um, house. She got up that morning. She went to the kitchen. She grabbed a knife out of the kitchen drawer and she ran out of the out of the house into the street and stabbed a woman to death. And it's a terrible, it's terrible, right? Someone lost their life. It wasn't someone that Marina knows, it was a stranger. Um, but emphasis here, and part of the reason to put it on the side, Marina was 11 years old and she was a victim of child sexual abuse and she had experienced other abuse, you know, the abuse in the foster care system. When she arrived, she went to a women's prison because she was convicted of a, an adult crime. She was one of 2,500 juveniles sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at 11 years old. And so when she was sent to prison, she was originally sent to solitary confinement to keep her safe because she was in an adult women's prison. Um, when we interviewed her in the behavioral management unit, she was still in solitary confinement as a way of managing her self-harming behavior. So we, we use the sort of metaphor in the book to talk about the fact that she went to, to solitary, not just prison. She went to solitary confinement before she had her first period, and she will go through menopause in solitary confinement. So the sort of reproductive arc of her life marked in, soli marked in solitary confinement. Um, she was so small that there was a sign on the door that said juvenile cuffs only. And we asked the officers, is she 18? Because you can't interview people under 18. And he said, no, 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 she's just so small. She's so small that we have to use juvenile cuffs, which I hope y'all are thinking, why do we have juvenile cuffs? But that's a different question for a different day. Um, and the last image is um, when we we've, we met with Marina twice, and the second time that we were there, she was doing therapy um, in the recreation room, and she was coloring. Um, and this was the picture that she colored. And I remarked to her um, that purple is my favorite color, and she asked if I wanted the picture. And I said, I would love to. She's in her 30s, by the way, late 30s at this point. Um, and I, you can you can stop the share, but but I I kept that picture. Um, I put it up in my office. Um, I, I have it, you know, a copy in my phone so that I will never forget Marina and all of the other women who went to prison as victims and who spend those years being re-victimized by a system that should be helping them. Yeah. Thank you, Angie, for sharing that most powerful and so sad and depressing stories, I have to say. I, I do want to, because Earl is here. Earl, I would, uh, we do have a little bit of time. I'd love to give you an opportunity if you'd like to add anything. You don't have to uh, if you don't want to, but if you'd like to, I'd like to give you the opportunity if there's anything that you'd like to add at all. Well, basically, I'd, I'd just like to apologize for not being able to attend the session the way we planned it. Um, I'll underscore what my colleague has uh, shared with you. Um, this business of locking people away, uh, isolation style, to the point where they don't talk to anybody, they don't see anybody, the, the correctional officers who deliver the food, who take them to the shower, who take them outside, et cetera, those are not companions. Those, those are people who simply drag you around uh, by a tether, uh, put shackles around your waist, around your ankles. These are not people that you converse with. So often when we were doing our interviews, people said to us clearly, uh, thank you for talking to me. Uh, they just wanted to talk and tell their story 
uh, in the, what, 15, 20 minutes that we had to, to conduct the interview. So I appreciate this panel and, and this is great work that you folks are doing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Earl. Yeah, and no worries. And we're glad that you're able to, to come on and join us. Yeah, so I, I've seen that we've had a few um, sort of comments and questions in the in the chat. We've tried to answer some of those, but Pat just sort of checking with you to see if I've missed uh, any. And then also I have a couple others, you know, I'd love to ask some of the panelists if there aren't any, but I want to go to the participants first and see if there's any questions that um, we can ask the panelists in particular. Yeah, uh, we did get a great question uh, in the Q&A from uh, Wendy Lee. Are there best practices that help to identify hidden intimate partner violence while behind the wall to help prevent survivors from returning to these unsafe experiences? Yeah, so who would we, who, who wants to take that question? Um, I can at least start. Yeah, go ahead, Cindy. And it and it's it's a hard one to answer because it's not just a lack of best practices. It's a lack of practices. It's there's just not very much work going on either in county jails or in state or tribal facilities uh, with um, incarcerated survivors. Even though has have several of us have pointed out throughout the presentation, um, the vast majority of people um, in jails and prisons, um, especially women, but not exclusively are survivors. Um, so I would really, I mean, one of our goals um, at the Defense Center is to get advocates inside jails and prisons. It happens some, it doesn't happen nearly as much as it needs to. Um, and, and the you know, some some people are doing life without parole, and they figure out ways to, um, you know, to to do the trauma processing themselves. Um, and, and in other situations, people are working on their reentry plans, and so those should always be the things that involve um, the kind of advocacy, treatment, and support that survivors need and survivors deserve. It should be on the same list as things, you know, which also aren't paid enough attention to, but on the same list as things like substance abuse, mental health treatment, and parenting. Yeah, that's a, a good segue to another question we had in the Q&A, which is about um, training or working with prosecutors so that they uh, understand the nexus and the needs of criminalized survivors uh, is that work that you do. I think it points to just a huge larger question that has really come to light in this uh, conversation, which is at every level, there's so much gender bias as well as gender-based violence. Um, so how, where do we start to address that? I don't want to talk too much, but we can. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Cindy. No, go ahead. Um, yes, and, you know, that is kind of the answer to that. You know, we have worked um, at the Defense Center. We have worked with prosecutors and prosecutors groups um, in order to talk with them about you know, making decisions that account for somebody's experiences of trauma and abuse. And there's so many barriers because, you know, what we tend to see is that prosecutors who kind of get it will offer, you know, sometimes reduced sentences or lesser charges. Um, but there's, you know, they're still incarcerating survivors. And so the more we can emphasize that justice is the focus um, and not necessarily can somebody be convicted under uh, the legal standard, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, like people really, it's important to ask the right questions. Um, and prosecutors, especially those who have been doing domestic violence cases for a long period of time, I think it's been our experience that they think they'll know 
you know if a survivor ends up on their docket they'll be able to tell and so we really ask people to to interrogate those reasons that they think that they can tell um, and take a deeper dive into looking for the circumstances that led to the offense that's in front of any given prosecutor. This might sound really sort of very simple, but given the stats, we should assume that any woman who's coming into the system has experienced some form of sexual or physical abuse. I mean, we should just assume that they all have. And if we started from that position of assumption, I think that might change the way that we think about best practices. Um, if we just understood that that is what we could expect, that's what we should expect. I totally, yeah. okay. and oh, no, go ahead, Caitlin Rose, go ahead. Yeah, I, I the, the additional, or the piece that I would add is, um, I think that like the training for that reason, it's so important that it starts on the ground level. Like, I think that there has to be training everywhere from the, the judges to the prosecutors, but um, especially like sometimes before a defense counsel is involved and says to their client, don't talk to anyone, the only person, right? Which defense counsel is going to say for very good reasons. The only person that's gonna get a chance to talk to that victim of gender-based violence is the, the law enforcement officer that's there, that's on the scenes, that's writing the report that goes in, to the prosecutor that makes charging decisions and that sets up everything else that follows. And so I just, I think it's so important to make sure that that the people that are making decisions about who even gets referred charges or who comes in the door in the first place knows how to, to see um, the history of, of violence. To, and again, to tell, is this, Am I speaking to a potential defendant or is this actually a victim of trafficking that I should be treating as a victim for a completely different reason? Or, you know, if like if this is someone who had just shot a person on the street, would I be looking at them as though they acted in self-defense? But because it happened in the home, I'm not even going to ask that question. Like, I think that it's so important that resources go there. And I, I don't think anyone said anything differently, but um, just wanted to make that plug. Yeah, and I think one of the things about that too that we learned in a number of communities is that there also aren't any really, like there are not many departments that are also doing self-defense determinations in their police departments. I mean, I'm still like having done this now for a number of years, like still shocked at us. I'll talk to someone in a state and like, 50% of the arrests still are dual arrests, right, in some state, or 50% are still women with no sort of look at self-defense to predominant aggressor, and also just to know about that the arrest in and of itself can have consequences, not even just the conviction, right, to, to what all of we're sort of talking about, that it can have impact on their job, their housing, right, so many parts of their life that even just an unjust arrest, yeah, can have as well. I have to yeah. stop and make a plug here as a college professor. We're working on our campus to make courses in this about these issues required. And you know, just like we require math and English and foreign language and public speaking and all of that stuff. And I'm not going to lie, it's a huge uphill battle. But uh, and certainly we need education that starts before college. Um, but we don't. We as a society do not understand or own yet that we all need to be trained in this. That's how pervasive this is, right? Yeah. So if there's a petition, my students are in this seminar, like if there's a petition, ah. like I'm asking <laughs> you to sign it. Yes, right, right. Yeah, thanks Angie. Yeah, and uh, from the chat, I, I just like to um, also make a plug for uh, Danielle Trueblood and going to her website, which is danieltrueblood.com to learn more about her play and, uh, you know, what uh, she has started in terms of, you know, breaking down um, the silence that goes along with uh, sexual abuse and sexual violence. And uh, someone in the chat um, had a question, uh, what percentage wise would you say schools or teachers are liable for neglecting or turning a deaf ear to signs and cries for help? And I wonder if Danielle, if you could speak to that as a survivor, were there opportunities that you felt went un, 
met, you know, uh, to be of real assistance? Um, well, <laughs> um, as for me, um, my behavior um, through this secret came out um, through um, suspensions, you know, um, mm. disrespecting the um, adults around me um, that ever, uh, that question that everyone is always asked, is there something going on? Um, continue to be unanswered. Um, I basically um, put a wall up, you know, um, a do not disturb because I wasn't answering any questions. As for now in these times, I look back and I'm speaking out um, um, there, this, this one example. When Secrets first premiered at Park Square Theater, in St. Paul right before the pandemic hit. Um, we were booked, sold out for four nights, um, but we only were able to present for the two nights before all the theaters shut down. And we went into the isolation. And during that isolation time, the, the audience that came out um, started sending me emails and emails you know, um, about the children are now being trapped at home with their perpetrators. And the teachers, you know, didn't have that eye on those students to, you know, notice that something was going on in a home or to even follow up and answer the questions to the children. And a lot of people said were you know, I got messages saying we got to do something. We can't let secrets continue to be a secret because, you know, now our kids are trapped with their perpetrators and they're probably being told the same thing that I was being told, don't say anything. Or someone in the family in that household was turning that blind eye. And so again, I wanted that platform where, you know, I can reach the youths. I can reach the ones that saying don't tell because it only bring more trouble. And so um, a lot of the things that I went through when I entered into the university world, I graduated from Metro State University and I was, you know, talking to a lot of the instructors who um, didn't know my path, you know, who couldn't believe you know, that yes, I was, I am a childhood survivor, but one thing that was never brought up that I was only functioning in the world that I created. Mm -hmm. And now here I was, I have expanded, you know, because I don't want to keep that secret. And I mm -hmm. want it to be the voice uh, for those who still are holding on to it, who don't want to expose themselves. You know, yeah. so uh, from that presentation to now, I still have teenagers and, and older women saying, it's as though you look into my life and told my secrets. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing. I'm sure then that's how you came to call it secrets, Daniil. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So we just have a couple other things um, but before ending today. I, I had one question sent to me directly to ask you, Caitlin Rose, which I, I think I know the answer, but I'm not an attorney, so I'm just going to ask you. And with, the question is about that. Um, well, that's a Minnesota Court of Appeals case, right? Do, do um, state Court of Appeals cases ever have impacts on other states' rulings? So it was someone from another state in the U.S., and they said, you know, does that apply here? I think it was just sort of a general question, like, help me understand, can this have any ripple effect nationally? Do states ever look to, to other states? Would you be able to answer that? Uh, I, I sure hope the answer is yes. I think that every time there is a court that looks at these specific issues, I've looked at all the cases. There are not okay. that published decisions out there that talk about between the next, the nexus between okay. self-defense and a history of domestic violence. So the more cases that say That's that history matters, 
the better. Um, of course, the cases that uh, I think other courts look to the most or get the most weight are published decisions from a state's highest court. I'd say there's a great decision on this topic out of Kansas, State v. Hunley. Oh, okay. The court a really thorough analysis of why why it matters and why jury instructions have to account for a history of domestic violence and self-defense cases. Um, but yeah, also. yeah. Okay, you know, that's exactly, I think, kind of what people are wondering, you know, like, does this only apply to Minnesota or how could this apply, you know, in other states? So thank you for answering that um, that question. So, and then Earl, you had your hand up. I, I, I wanted to acknowledge that and see if you had something you wanted to add to a previous comment. We we have a moment for you to be able to do that. So Earl. Okay, I I was trying to do the clap signal Oh, I see. Um, okay, not the hand signal of the class. Okay. To, uh, thank Danielle for yeah. saying what she just said about people not listening or turning a blind eye. And I was trying to clap. <laughs> okay, okay, great. Well, thank you, everyone. I, every time I do one of these um, Valiant Voices, the time just goes by so quickly. But I really like to thank our guests for talking to us today and thank our participants for being here. I'd like to thank my colleagues, uh, Patricia Cumby and Sophia Morissette for ensuring this conversation went smoothly and, and it's always so organized and they deal with the technology side of it as well. Um, we've included links in the chat to learn more if you'd like to learn more about Global Rights for Women, our work to support us. Just know your contribution goes to supporting the work of advocates around the globe, centering survivors' voices as the means to systemic change. In a few days, you'll receive an email. Um, Sophia will be organizing that for us. We'll include the recording, all the things that were in the chat we'll put in there, and all of the resources. So once again, thank you so much for being here. It was an honor to share this space with all of you and all of these uh, panelists and all of our participants. So please have a great uh, rest of your day. We hope to see you at our next Valiant Voices. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valiant Voices. We hope you were able to take away something meaningful from our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, Global Rights for Women, and how you can be part of the movement to end violence against women and girls, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org. And thank you.